All right, let's take our Bibles out. We're going to turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. If you'd follow along as I begin reading in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places." far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. William Randolph Hearst is obviously famous for being a publisher of newspapers. Started out on the West Coast, moved to New York sometime later. I think he had at one point 30 different newspapers in major cities around the country that he published. One of the things also that he delved into was art. He had quite an art collection. He loved collecting a huge variety of art. Some of them were just books that were signed by the authors and other uh, sculptures and, and all kinds of different art that he collected from around the world. Well, the story is told that at one point he read a description about some valuable pieces of art that he decided that he wanted. He hired his agent to go out and find those pieces of art so that he could bring them into his collection. Well, his agent traveled for months. He traveled all over the place trying to track down these valuable pieces of art. And finally, he returned to William Randolph Hearst with the news that he had found those valuable pieces of art. And where he had found them was in a warehouse owned by none other than William Randolph Hearst. He already owned them. <laughs> and he hired this guy, spent all kinds of money to send this guy all over the countryside and all over the world to track down these assets that he already owned. Warren Wearsby used that story in his commentary on this passage to illustrate the point that Christians can sometimes be the same way. You know, as Christians, we have a lot of amazing things at our disposal. And many times, it just goes unrecognized. We don't understand what we ourselves possess. And so we can find ourselves at times feeling unfulfilled or discouraged or in, even in despair. And all the time, the resources or the things to deal with that or to pick us up, to encourage us, we already possess. We're just not acknowledging it. We're just like William Randolph Hearst with that, with that art. We just don't realize that we have it. And, you know, that's exactly what this entire passage right here is all about. In fact, I think that that's a lot of what the whole chapter is about. Because the Apostle starts to go through his desire for these people. And his main desire, as you look through the passage and all the things that he brings into it, is that they would understand what a great hope they have. What a wonderful hope. As we look back in, in verse 15... He starts out, for this reason. What is the reason that he's talking about? So I went back to what we covered up to this point. Is the reason 
all the things that we have in Christ, the adoption and the redemption and the inheritance we've got, or is it just the last little part that he talked about, about us being sealed by the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit's just a guarantee of much more uh, inheritance to come? Is it the, that we're sealed by that Holy Spirit? Is that the reason? And then I started to read what came after it. And he says, for this very reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. I thought maybe that's the reason. Because the, maybe the reason is their faith that he's heard about and their love for one another that he's also heard about. Maybe that's the reason. And I kind of came to the conclusion that, you know what, I really think it's both. Because there's things in, that connect these two passages, what we've already talked about and what we're talking about today that intricately link these things together. Because he's going to try to bring these Christians to the place where they're recognizing what a great hope they have in Christ. Now, he has mentioned the word hope only one time in the passage coming up to this, and it wasn't really used in the same way. Remember, he talked about those who were the first to hope in Christ. He used kind of more like the word faith in that sense. We talked about that last week. So he hasn't really used the word a lot in that passage, but when you look back at that passage, there's so much in that passage that would give them hope. The fact that they were chosen out before the foundation of the world, that they were predestined to be adopted by God and to be redeemed by God and, and to receive this inheritance by God. There's a lot of things there that would really lend themselves towards strengthening the hope that these individuals have. Not only that, he acknowledges them for their faith and love and then you know there's three things that always go together, that often go together in the New Testament. Faith, hope, and love. Those three things. So hope is just a part of those two things that he already acknowledges. Well, let me back up just a little bit to that point and we'll kind of take it from there. And I'll, I'll tell you uh, straight up that if you're taking notes, it's kind of like a road map <laughs> today. There's a lot of points in your notes here today. You know, that's one of the biggest challenges that I'm finding is studying through Ephesians, is that roadmap. He says so much in such a short space that is trying to keep what he already said here in the back of your mind while you're reading what he's saying next and looking forward to what's coming ahead because it's full of so much information. But it is so packed with information that I find myself trying to get a hold of this little part while at the same time remembering the big picture around it. And so that's what the roadmap is for here this morning. Well, the passage can kind of be broken down into two chunks. The Apostle Paul starts off with a praise for the believers that he's, that he's writing to. And then he's going to go into a prayer for those same believers. Now, as we consider this idea of living in hope, he starts off with this praise for the believers. And what is the praise that he, that he gives to them? The first thing that he appraises them for is their faith. He acknowledges their faith. He says, I've heard about your faith and your love. And so he's praising them for that. We've mentioned this a few times, how the Apostle Paul often will kind of measure a church or individuals by these three things, faith, hope, and love. He says, look, you're strong in your faith. You put your faith in Jesus Christ and you're continuing to walk with Him. You're strong in your love for one another. You have a genuine concern and care for one another. You know what I remember years ago? 23 plus years ago when I first got here to pastor this church and we kind of went through a self-identifying thing. What are we? And it ended up on our sign in a slogan that we care. We care for one another. People said that's one of the dominant things in our church. One of the things I saw within this church in a very early part. Well, that's what the Apostle Paul is telling these people. He's saying, look, your love is spoken about to me by other people that have seen it 
in you, this care that you have for one another. So the Apostle Paul starts off by praising them for the first two things, but you know what he's going to do next? He's going to say, but I do have a prayer concern for you. Something that I lift up before God. And you know what his prayer for these people is? Hope. It's hope. Now, he's actually going to list it in three different ways. So he's going to say, look, I really want you guys to see something clearly, and that's this great hope to which God's called you, this great inheritance, and His power that is accessible by you. But all of those things really reinforce the main thing, which is hope. Recognizing the riches of the glorious inheritance that we have in Christ would strengthen our hope. Recognizing the power that we have in Christ through Him would strengthen our hope. And so hope is kind of a main point and also one of the three points underneath it as well. But that's really what he's doing is he's trying to strengthen their hope. Now, let me ask you this. Why would a people that are still strong in their faith, they're not shaken in what they believe, people that love one another because of their relationship with Christ, they love one another deeply, why are they rattled in their hope? Well, I think we can get an understanding about that a little bit if we look at the history of Ephesus. And what would come in their future as well. Because if we look back at Acts chapter 19, we find when the Apostle Paul first goes into Ephesus. And he goes into Ephesus and he does what he usually does. He goes into the synagogue first. The people with already have a background in the Old Testament that are waiting for the Messiah to come. The Jewish people. And he goes into them and he begins telling them about how Christ is that Messiah that has come. He's the, he's the one we've been waiting for. But they're stubborn. And so after three months of meeting with them continually in the synagogue and arguing for Jesus Christ, he leaves from there and he goes to the hall of Tyrannus. So, so it's kind of like if he came here, he came, he went into a church, he's arguing for Christ. They're stubborn in their unbelief. He leaves that and goes and rents the community building and starts talking with people there. That's kind of the idea here. And he continues to do that for two years. And they see Gentiles. They see people come to Christ. People are coming to Christ. Some Jewish people coming to Christ. Because some of them left the synagogue to go to the, to the hall of Tyrannus with Him. And so Jewish people are coming to Christ. Gentile people are coming to Christ. The church is growing. They're having a great amount of success. A lot to be excited about. A lot to be hopeful for. But along with that success comes a lot of resistance. Because what happens is, you know, as Ephesus is the home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple to the goddess Artemis or Diana was there. But it was in full, full use in those days. People were worshiping this false god there. And what happened was, you have these different silversmiths and stuff. One man named Demetrius. And he starts getting everybody stirred up because as people were becoming Christians, they had a big kind of a book burning. They took all the things that they used to use to worship Artemis, and they brought them and they destroyed them. And the silversmith thought, uh-oh, this is how we make our living. What's going to happen to our business if people are no longer buying the idols to Artemis and these different things to worship with? And so he, tried, he stirred people up. And they caused a great amount of confusion. They had a big riot is what started there in Ephesus. And I don't know how many people were there. The Colosseum still exists today. The Colosseum in Ephesus holds like 24,000 people. And there's this big riot going on within there. And the Apostle Paul, he wants to go in and address the people in the riot. And the other believers are like, oh no you don't. Get out of here. 
And finally, somebody from within the city stands up and says, hey, wait a minute, what's the problem? And he starts to sift through the confusion. And he, and he boils it down and he says, look, if, if Demetrius and these other silversmiths have a problem with this guy, they can settle it in the courts. But we're in danger of being found guilty of having a riot. And riots were not tolerated in Rome. It was during the Pax Romana or the Roman peace. Any kind of an uprising was quickly squelched by Rome with severe penalties. And so everything calmed down. But there's this big resistance then to Christianity as well. Well, the Apostle Paul, a little bit later, he's going to travel. He doesn't have time to go down to Ephesus. He wants to. But he doesn't have time. He wants to get back to Jerusalem before the Passover. And so rather than going all the way into Ephesus, he calls to the leaders of Ephesus and says, meet me up at Miletus, which is more on the way for him. And he's going to just meet with the elders of the church there in Ephesus. And this is what he tells them. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. The point I'm making is the church in Ephesus was strong in their faith. They were strong in their love for one another. They're a little rattled in their hope. I think that they're rattled in their hope because maybe that resistance that's been lodged against them by the community at large, maybe the stubbornness of the Jewish people in the synagogue, maybe through all that they're starting to feel a little ganged up on, a little bit overwhelmed, a little bit down. And then the Apostle Paul stops and visits with the elders and he says, you know what? The church is not going to not have its problems. See, they've already experienced some problems from outside the church, but he says you're also going to experience some problems from within inside the church. He said there's going to be wolves that are going to come in. And not only that, they're going to come up from among you. In other words, right up through the church. There's going to be false teachers that are going to rise and try to get people to follow them and, and lead you in a wrong direction. And so you can see that, man, if you're having, if you're in a church that's getting a bad rap from the community and a, maybe some strife and struggle and disunity from inside, hope kind of starts to fade to the back. But you know what? They still have every reason for hope because nothing's changed. They still have this glorious inheritance in Christ. They still have the power of God that's demonstrated through the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ. And they still have every reason for hope even though they're going to have struggles. You know, I've talked to people that have criticized the church at times for having struggles here and there within the church. You know, church is a family. Anybody part of a family that doesn't have struggles from time to time? I didn't think so. And the church is going to have its struggles. When you read back to the church during the days of the apostles, even during the days of the apostles, it had its struggles. In fact, when Jesus Christ was on the earth and we could call the church one small little group of disciples, those twelve, there were some problems within those guys. But you know what? Even the church, even if it's having these struggles, even if it's having a little trouble from those outside the church, even a little trouble from those inside the church, there's still tremendous reason for hope. How did the Ephesians hold up? We get a little bit of insight. In Revelation chapter 2, it writes a letter to the church of Ephesus. 
And he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Just as the Apostle Paul had warned them, they're going to have false teachers, false apostles come up through and try to lead people astray. This church apparently had, because of that warning, put tests in place, made sure that they tested people on what they were saying, whether it lined up with the teaching of the apostles, whether it lined up with the Word of God, and they found them to be false and they dealt with them. That's encouraging. But at the same time, with the focus being completely on that, he says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. But I have this against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from whence you have, where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which false teachers, which I also hate. And so it's kind of a mixed bag a little bit in Ephesus. How did they do? Well, in some sense, they did very well. They continued to hold to the truth of the Word of God. They stood firm in their faith. And they did well. They seem to be struggling a little bit in their love for Christ because Christ says, you know what, your love has kind of grown cold. I think you might also still see a little struggle in their hope because your hope is impacted when you've lost your first love. But you know what's more important this morning is not how Ephesus did with their hope. It's how you're doing with yours and how I'm doing with mine. We're the ones living it today. You know, hope is vitally important. I remember when I took counseling classes when I was in college, in Bible college. And one of the first things that we learned is that your first job as a counselor is to instill or communicate hope. Without hope, there's no incentive. There's no motivation to do what you need to do to make things work. No matter what the kind of problem it is, hope is always the starting point. And you know, it's one of the things when I think of it today, what a better, what better time to be dealing with hope than now? We're in the Christmas season. And to quote the mom on uh, Home Alone, this is Christmas. It's a season of perpetual hope. That's what it means, right? But not only that, we're celebrating Christmas in a, in a year where our suicide rates are higher than they usually are. Because with the pandemic and other things going around, people seem to be losing a little bit of hope. You know what? There's always hope in Christ. To the one that conquered death, how can there not always be hope? And that's what we're looking at this morning as the Apostle Paul was trying to reinforce and to reinvigorate the hope of these early believers. He is doing the same with us. So secondly, we see that there's a prayer. He starts off with the praise and then he goes into the prayer. And what is the prayer? The prayer is their hope. Now, the way to get your hope boosted is through a process. It's through a process that's spelled out within this passage. And notice what he specifically prays for. He's praying in verse 17. He says, I'm remembering you in my prayers in verse 16. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He's called you. He gives us here the whole process. What needs to happen for us to have a firm hope, to us to have a lively, invigorated hope as we look at the prospects of our life and living for Christ and our future in Him? You know what's needed? Information. 
It's information because he says, I'm praying for you. I'm praying this, that God would give you the spirit, the spirit that they've just been sealed with, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Our faith is based on revelation. There is no way that we could know God without him revealing himself to us. And that's exactly why we have this book. That's exactly why we have this Bible. This is God's revelation to us. Now the Apostle Paul is saying, I'm praying that God will take that revelation and that you will see it very clearly through the eyes of your heart. So the very center, the very core of your being. In other words, he's saying, I'm I'm praying that you, through the Holy Spirit's work in your life, you really get a grasp on what God has revealed for us about all that we have in Him. And he's going to list those three things. We'll go through them shortly. But you see, that's where it starts. We have to have our perspective changed. We lose hope when our perspective is too small. We lose hope when we get our, our vision, our focus on the wrong things. I think of the Psalms. How many Psalms do we read where David starts out crying and whining about what's going on in his life and the situation around him? And then at the end of the Psalm, he's rejoicing and praising God. What in the world happened? You know what happened? If you read the middle part of the psalm, somewhere in that psalm, David starts to bring God into the equation. He starts to focus not so much on his problem, but on who God is. And by the time he gets to the end of the psalm, he's like, man, my God is so much bigger than my problem that I can't help but worship. And you see, that's what happens to us. When we get without hope, when we get discouraged and down, it's because we're looking at the size of the problems. We're like Peter. Jesus comes walking on water out to the disciples in the midst of a storm. Peter, strong in faith, says, Lord, let me come out to you. It would have been pretty strong faith to say, Lord, get in the boat with us. Very strong faith to say, let me walk across this with you. But Peter gets out on the water because Jesus tells him to come. He gets out on the water and what does he do? He takes his eyes off of Christ and he begins to look at the waves. And he begins to sink. And he cries out to the Lord, refocuses on Christ, and Christ saves him. You see, we get our focus on the wind and the waves. We get our focus on the things that are threatening. We get our focus on the negativity. And what do we need? We need hope. We need to refocus. See, without without hope, we live in pessimism instead of optimism. Without hope, we're afraid of defeat rather than living in victory. And the way that we get hope is not just from pie in the, some pie in the sky, oh, fiddly D, I'm not going to think about that attitude. It's by getting a grasp on the truth. The truth is that we have this glorious hope in Christ. And the Apostle Paul is saying, look, I'm afraid you're like William Randolph Hearst who has all this tremendous treasure but doesn't even know that he has it. He's saying, I'm really praying that the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that you get this clear vision, this clear perspective of the tremendous hope that God has laid out for you. If you get an understanding of what you have in Christ, you will have hope. You can't help but have it. He says, I want you to have the spirit of revelation, wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the knowledge of God. He says, I want you to have that so that you can know, so that you can know something. You've got to grow in your knowledge of God to grow in your strength in God. So we take the Word of God, we get to know God better, and we become more tapped into or more access to the power of God in our lives. That's exactly what he's telling us. But notice again, everything comes from God. He's saying, I'm praying that God will give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. The three things that he's going to mention, he's going to mention the hope to which 
He has called you. He's going to mention the inheritance. And He's going to call it His inheritance. Even though it's going to you, it's coming from Him. It's His inheritance that He has for you. And His divine power. So it's all coming from God. In our natural capacity, we don't have the ability to understand God. That's why the Apostle Paul is praying for these people. These people that have that Holy Spirit within them who is sealing them, who is equipping them to be able to understand and know God better so that their hope can be strengthened. To have this hope, as remember, as I said, the hope is not only the main point over the whole thing, it's also kind of the first point. He says, in order to strengthen your hope, the first thing I want you to see is how great your hope is. And I'm praying that God will do a work in your heart through His Spirit, give you that spirit of revelation so you can see how glorious this hope is. But also, he says, they need a clear understanding of his inheritance. He wants the eyes of their heart enlightened so that they can see this glorious inheritance. And why is the inheritance glorious? Because our Father is glorious, as he just mentioned a few verses earlier. And so we have this glorious inheritance in him. And we're not going to talk a lot about that because we spent a little bit of time focusing on that last week. But he says, I just want you guys to know that it is amazing the things that God has in store for you. You have this wonderful inheritance which should do what? Strengthen your hope. And then lastly, a clear understanding of His power. Now, there's quite a bit that he describes within this power. The first thing that he describes is that this power is in Christ. It says, and what is the immeasurable... I love that. He's saying you can't, you can't measure this power. Greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ. And so he's saying, look, you have this tremendous power. In fact, one of the commentators says, it's like he pulled out every synonym for power that he could think of. The Greek word for power is dunamis, which comes from our word that we get the word dynamite from. The word for working, about God's working on our behalf in this passage, comes from the word that we get our word energy from. And then he uses two other words as well. So he uses like four different Greek synonyms and they're all saying power. And it's God's power. And we have access to that power. He goes on to point out that this power has been demonstrated for us already in two different ways. First of all, it's been demonstrated in Christ's resurrection. His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. And so God is saying, look, you want to know how much power you have? It overcomes death. That's our greatest enemy, right? That's the last enemy that's going to be defeated is, is that enemy death. But that's the power that we have, is this power, this resurrection power that can conquer death on our behalf. But then not only is it demonstrated in His resurrection, it's also demonstrated in His exaltation. It says, when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the age to come. He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Because of the death and the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ, we know that we're now dead to sins and we look forward to the resurrection and the exaltation as we are in Christ. And this exaltation, it's limitless in place because it talks about here in the church that Christ is above all things here in the church, down here on earth. 
And He's above all things in heavenly places. He's been exalted to the right hand of God in the heavenly realms. But then it's also limitless in position. Because it says He's above all authority, all rule, all power, all... There is not one position that's, not, that's left unconquered by Christ. Except, of course, the position of His Father. And then also in time. Because He says not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So this power that we are able to tap into in Christ is demonstrated in His resurrection, in His exaltation. There's no limit to it. There's no limit to it in place. There's no limit to it in position. There's no limit to it in time. It's just phenomenal. And when they're done hearing this read in Ephesus, there's absolutely no reason on the world for them to be down in the dumps. They have every reason, no matter what they're going through, no matter what they're dealing with, struggling with, or celebrating at the time, to be without hope. You know, later in the chapter 2, he's going to point out their past. And he's going to say, you know what, you used to be without hope. But not in Christ. In Christ, you should never be without hope again. That's for us. Before we came to Christ, we were without hope in this world. After coming to Christ, there is not a moment of any day in any situation where we should ever be without hope again. 